Welcome back to Radio Physics. Corey Michelin, a rising senior at Aspen High School, and Madeline Schaefer, the daughter of visiting physicists, will interview Kristen Degg, a MSI, I don't know what MSI is, but we'll figure that out, postdoctoral fellow at the McGill Space Institute. Kristen uses multi-length observations to identify objects in extreme gravitational environments and characterize their physics. She received her Ph.D. in astrophysics from Michigan State University and her Bachelor of Science in Physics at the University of Michelin-Dearborn. And we will begin with my question. What is MSI? Um, So MSI is McGill Space Institute. So the postdoc I applied for, um, I said, hey, I'd like to come work with all of you. And they said, sure, you know. We'll pay you to do that. Ah, thank you. And now we'll go to Corey. Um, I guess the first opening question would be, how long have you been uh, in the physics like environment working and studying? Yeah, um, I guess it would be about 10 years now. I started my, yeah, I started my undergrad in 2012. I feel old. <laughs> and yeah, I finished in 2014. I started grad school in 2015 through 2020. And then I've been a postdoc for the last two years. All right. And when did you want to pursue physics? Oh, Was there a moment? Or? Um, it's. I don't think I have one of those stories where like I wanted to ever since I was a child. Even <laughs> I would say like when I was your age, I had no clue. Um, I always enjoyed being outside and so like where I grew up the only two things within walking distance was the library and the cider mill Um, (laughs) so I I read all of the books in the library and then I spent a lot of time outside looking at plants and birds which was exciting but then I also really really liked math Um, and then when I started college everybody I knew growing up they either worked in medicine or engineering I, medicine is one of those things where I'm glad somebody else wants to do it because I don't want to. So I thought maybe I'll try engineering. Um, I took a physics class at a community college probably when I was your age. And I, the same person taught the astronomy class. I said, I'm really interested. Can I sit in on your class? And I remember I was asking him questions after class one day. And he said, what are you going to go to college for? And I said, I want to be an engineer. He says, you're not an engineer. You're a physicist. So, of course, I said, no, I'm not, and I'll prove you wrong for about two weeks. And I said, yeah, okay, you're right. I'm a physicist. <laughs> yeah, and, well, you're at the Aspen, the Center for Physics, so. <laughs> Can't dodge that one anymore. No. Um, you talked about how you asked uh, these people if you could go work for them. What is it like a day in your life, typically? So... That's kind of an interesting question now with how the pandemic has been. Um, For, like, the most of my job, I actually, like, I had to physically relocate to Canada. Um, It was my first time living in a city, which was different, but I do like um, having a bagel store around the corner for me. (laughs) Um, But a lot of my job is actually done on the computer, which I think for astronomy, you don't expect that because when most people think of astronomy, they think you go out and you look at the stars. But we have, you know, telescopes all over the world and in space, and all that data comes into my computer. 
So I spend a fair amount of time actually analyzing the data to figure it out. Um, I spend a lot of time, I think people don't expect this, I spend a lot of time doing writing, which is something I really enjoy. And so um, it's a really important form of communication. So writing up my results, you know, for the community to say, hey, I found this awesome thing. And then also there's um, something I'm working on right now. There's a telescope I want to use and I can't just go up and use it. I have to write a proposal to say, hey, I have this awesome idea that only your telescope can do. Here's why you should pick my target. Um, and then the other thing I spend a lot of time on, which I would say is my favorite part of my job, is I do a lot of research projects with undergraduate students. And they, that's just like really awesome and inspiring. That's kind of how my career in astronomy got started. And I love kind of being able to pass it on. Um, you were talking about how you analyze data for like a lot of your day. Um, what data are you analyzing? As much as I can get my hands on. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, um, I, my joke is that I do pretty much every part of the electromagnetic spectrum. So I mainly use X-ray observations. I also do a lot of optical observations. Um, and then I'm trying to get into radio now. Um, so for each, and then sometimes I do gamma ray, but that's really hard. So, <laughs> um, But for each sort of um, mode of data you get, you have to understand each telescope that it came from and how they're different from each other. And then you have to learn how to process the data so that you know that what you're seeing is your source and not instrumental effects from the telescope. And then you have to sort of take the physics we know about similar objects and apply that knowledge to what you see. Um, so I guess an example here of what I do is um, a technique called X-ray spectroscopy. So um, X-ray telescopes are amazing because one of the things you get in is every time you get a photon in from your source, you know um, where that photon came from, you know the relative time in between photons, and you also know the energy of the photon. And if you plot the number of photons at each energy level versus the energy, um, it's a very fancy histogram. The shape of that actually can tell you things about the physics of the system that generated that. And so um, fitting that shape and understanding what's going on is sort of one way you can try to track down, like a black hole, for instance. So you're taking this data mm -hmm. and um, it, it's telling you about the specific stars that this telescope has looked at. Right. Or black holes. Black holes, <laughs> yeah. And so you're working to identify the black holes? Yeah. Um, versus, um, so how, do, how would you know if it was like a black hole in a system versus something else? Yeah, so that's the tricky part, right? So <laughs> the definition of a black hole is that they don't emit light, which is kind of obnoxious. Um, <laughs> but we know that, um, you know, these things are so massive and they have so much gravitational force that they influence the things around them. And so the specific systems I look at are called X-ray binaries. So you have um, a black hole or a neutron star, um, and they get very, very close. They have a star friend, and <laughs> they orbit around each other. I'm doing this with my hands, but it's, yeah, two, two friends in a tight orbit. They orbit around each other. And then because the black hole, or I should say compact object, is the more inclusive term of black holes and neutron stars, they have so much gravitational force that they eat the star, and um, that can form what's called an accretion disk around the source. Um, so it's this like big disk of plasma that emits X-rays, and that's um, primarily what I look at when I look at an X-ray. 
Um, is that like? I, I mean, I've seen a picture of like a black hole, yeah. and it, it's like a big black circle, but there's like Saturn rings. Yes. Of light around it. Is that what you are talking about? Yes. Oh, okay, cool. Um, you seem like you rely really heavily on these telescopes. Are there any any ever any like errors or malfunctions in the telescopes that you've gotta like pick apart and realize that you know you have some data that's actually incorrect? I could talk for so so long about this. It is um I won't say it's the bane of my existence. I would say that a large portion of my job isn't just, you know, trying to pick through data and find the cool things, but understanding and characterizing the data so well that I can prove that what I'm seeing is not instrumental, but is a true signal. Um, so for an example of what you just described, um, some, something really sad that happened. So another technique I use is called um, optical spectroscopy. So I use a lot of um, data from ground-based telescopes. My favorite telescope is SOAR telescope, which is on a mountain in Chile. And um, I have to stay up all night and collect the data myself. And um, when you do spectroscopy, I do very faint sources. So you have to point the telescope at your target and let it sit for about half an hour at a time. Uh, And so one time, about 15 minutes into my exposure, there was an earthquake. (laughs) So I had to throw that data set out. But there are things where um, you think you have a really clear night and then clouds move in front of your source and then block the light. So that happened to one spectrum where I was looking at a feature in it and I was like, whoa, like I looked at this last year and it was really bright and now it's really dim. Like, you know, what's going on here? And then I got another telescope to look at it later and it was still bright and not dimmer. So that's an example of the clouds ruining everything. (laughs) And you need to keep the telescope on this one target for 30 minutes because... It's really faint. It's really faint, okay. So, like, um, the size of the telescope limits how bright of a source you can look at. And my targets are sort of at the limit. Um, And so I will, like, sit it. I won't just sit on it for 30 minutes. I will sit on it for 30 minutes at a time from, like, midnight until 4 or 5 a.m. and stack all of that data. And are you at the telescope? (laughs) I have been there, but we do remote observing. Okay, cool. That's that's what I assumed. Um, um, I actually heard about that telescope when I was um, looking through another telescope in California. Oh, cool. Um, and it, it was like, the less atmosphere there is, the better of a view. Yeah. Like, the better of a view you can get because there's less air molecules, like, blocking the vision. So yeah. I think that's really interesting. Um, one question I would like to ask is, um, I know dark matter is very, like, relevant in universal observation and how um how relevant is it in what you do um yeah so i think that i do things on i would say relatively small scales so i guess for example the galaxies that people study dark matter and they are usually host black holes that are millions to billions of times the mass of the sun and then you have a galaxy full of stars you know and it's huge in extent and bright um, the little buddies that I look for can be a few times the mass of our sun. And if we ever got one that was like a thousand times the mass of the sun, that would be very exciting. I don't. And then um, usually they are either with a single companion star or they are in a globular cluster. Um, <laughs> and globular clusters 
Um, so, for instance, uh, this galaxy M87, which I'm sure lots of people have heard of now, that galaxy itself has 10,000 globular clusters in it, and I'm looking for targets inside single globular clusters to give you an extent of the scale. So um, I think on a holistic perspective, for instance, globular clusters are actually also an important tracer of um, galaxy formation and dark matter, but um, I don't really care about that. I like to know my globular clusters personally. <laughs> does the light from the other stars in a globular cluster, does that abstract uh, the vision of uh, what you are actually trying to see? That inside? is a re really, really great question. Um, this is something that comes up a lot, and I spend a lot of time thinking about this. So uh, I probably should have prefaced everything with, um, I'm an extragalactic astronomer. I have never, ever, ever worked on a target inside our own galaxy. Um, so when you look up pictures of globular clusters, you'll see these beautiful balls of like 10,000 of the stars. Like they look absolutely beautiful. And um, some of them like 47 Tucane, which is my, f my favorite galactic cluster, you can see with your own eyeballs if you go to like South America. Um, so I love those, but my globular clusters don't look that. My globular clusters are so far away that in a telescope, they look like one single blob of light. So all of my clusters are all of the stars, like the light integrated together. Um, and like this can actually cause a problem with the classification of an X-ray source because we know that globular clusters can have um, maybe five different X-ray sources in them. So if you have a really, really bright X-ray source in a globular cluster, how do you know if that's a single source or five to 10 sources added up together? Um, and so this is where um, you know, the fact that X-ray telescopes can not only give us information about the spectra, like I mentioned earlier, but also the arrival of the photons. This allows you to look for variability. And if it's a single source, um, we know a lot of X-ray sources in our galaxy that are really, really highly variable in X-ray. And a lot of our extragalactic sources also show variability. And that means that we have one source, you know, behaving wildly and wonderfully instead of five sources you know, teaming up to trick us. Um, when you see these stars, uh, you see them in other galaxies. So when you're seeing this light, this light was produced millions to billions of years ago. How does this relate to, like, nowadays? Like, why do we need to know this? Um, so I think that's an interesting question. I think I would say that there's a couple of pieces here. Um, and so one is that when we're looking at this light from, you know, in some cases millions of years ago, we're looking, I think, both at our past and at the future of our galaxy. So this information, um, you know, can mention, can kind of um, help us know where we came from. So, so for instance, the we our own galaxy has a massive black hole in it. Um, we have, we think we know how it formed which is that we had a bunch of less massive black holes combine into something really massive, but we have no evidence for those less massive ones. Um, so that's, you know, those are primarily what I try to hunt down. So if we can find these objects, they can tell us how the, our surroundings formed, is one answer. Um, and then I think, I guess another thing I'm interested in is that... Um, I haven't, I haven't brought up white dwarfs yet, <laughs> but our sun is going to turn into a white dwarf one day. 
And so I think um, a lot of, so some of these systems interact with white dwarfs and can tell us more about the properties of white dwarfs. So I, I kind of see that as our future and our past, if that makes sense. Um, just for clarification, should we go over what a, a dwarf, white dwarf is? Yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I have the best definition of one. Um, so when people mention compact objects, I, I, mostly when people talk about that, they're referring to black holes and neutron stars. White dwarfs are technically compact, but they are also called degenerate. Um, they have degenerate electron pressure, which is something I learned in grad school. And don't remember, so please don't ask me. <laughs> um, but they're basically these really weird systems that are... Um, this is really mean, but I think of them as filled black holes. <laughs> so objects like our sun that when, you know, like we know that um, stars are... They have gravitational pressure that make them burn up all their fuel. And then when they run out of fuel, they will... If they're massive enough, this is called the Chandrasekhar limit. If they're massive enough they will explode and turn into black holes and neutron stars. But if they're below the Chandrasekhar limit, like our sun, they will turn into white dwarfs. Okay, so they're, like, cut from the same cloth, just, like, there's there's a limit, like you said. Yeah, okay. they're all dead stars. Uh-huh. <laughs> they're just, some dead stars are more interesting than others. Is there an infinite amount of stars if when, uh, after stars live, like, the the fullest of extent of what they can do if some of them turn into you know black holes and other ones turn into stars does that dwindle the amount of stars uh that we have in our universe so there's um there's kind of two i think places to go with this and so one of them is actually a paradox that was very popular in the 1920s and i don't remember the name of it but i think it was arthur eddington said that if the universe is infinite and we have an even distribution of stars, if we integrate all of that starlight across infinity, then why is the sky dark at night? Um, so this one, it turns out to be a little bit more of a thought experiment that I don't remember, but that's immediately what I thought of when you said that. But I think the other thing that what you asked ties into is actually the question of dark matter. Um, so I know I said I didn't care about dark matter, but um, early on, when people were talking about dark matter, um, which I guess I think may be a very hand-wavy way of explaining dark matter, is that we weighed up, we weighed galaxies versus, like, the total weight of a galaxy, which you can get by measuring, like, the movement of things, because everything comes back to Newton's law, which says that things with mass exert force and make things move. So we said, hey, the way, the rate at which things are moving suggests there's a lot more mass than what our eyeballs and telescopes are telling us. Um, so one of the first explanations for dark matter was just that, oh, there's a gazillion black holes everywhere and we can't see them. Um, that is something that other people, not me, hotly debate. And I think, that, I think that's what you were asking? Yeah, basically. Okay. Yeah, I think the so I guess my answer is I don't think I think there's other people that work on this who are not me that are in a better position to answer your question. But but I think what Maddie was saying was Maddie correct me um that are, are the number of stars dwindling. Yes. Oh, okay, I understand. So um 
The nice thing is that there's a bunch of galaxies, um, there's stars of all ages, and so <clears throat> stars have different lifetimes. So um, it, you, ha if you're more massive, then you'll die sooner. And then if you're less massive, like the sun, you can live for quite a lot longer times. But there's also a range of different ages. So farther away from us, um, there are my favorite galaxies, which are called elliptical galaxies, that are made out of um, mostly the stars that have longer lifespans, and they're quite a lot older. And then nearby us, and even our own galaxy, they're, con they're considered young because they're only millions instead of billions of years old. Um, but those have a lot of active star-forming regions where stars are being born. So so where is the, what is the star-forming region? What is creating the new stars? Is that kind of the other half of the question? Yeah, so this is something that it's also an active research area that um, is not well understood. But I don't know if you have seen some of the press release photos from the JWST. So one of the photos that's absolutely beautiful is actually of a star forming region and it's these big blobs of dust everywhere. So somehow through something that we don't understand yet, the blobs of dust um, can kind of aggregate and then turn into stars. Like these faint bits of mass in the universe, like forming stars. Yeah, I I mean, so they're bright in ultraviolet, so I don't think think of them as faint. Uh -huh. But yeah, so if you anytime you look at a picture of a spiral galaxy, um, those are usually false color images, and so they will have stacked X-ray, I think, optical and UV. So any of the really bright blue spots in those galaxies, so those are all star forming regions. Hmm. So stars are forming, but they're also destroying themselves because yes. every star that is born will turn into a white dwarf or a black hole or a neutron star yep okay um is there any um way to tell whether you know a, a big cloud of dust or mass is going to turn into a large star or a small star or a black hole like is there any way to tell um i don't i guess naively i think you could say that if there's so, of course, to make a large star, you would want to be able to grab a lot more stuff. So if there was either more stuff available or the the, the mechanism, I'm waving my hands here because we have no idea how this happens. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so if like by whatever mechanism you decide stars form, you you can um, probably, if there's like more dense environments where you can grab more stuff, then that's how you would make your different range of stars. Uh -huh. And I think another um, important thing to note here is that in like in star forming environments, it's not like you know this environment only forms this type of stars in a different one. Um, you will have um, you know initially when things are born, you'll have all sorts of different types of stars born together. And this is this is why I absolutely love globular clusters. So globular clusters are extremely old. So that means that all of the um, stars have died off except our long-lived ones. Hmm. And because of that, you can actually measure their ages by looking at what stars are not there. Is there a correlation between the density of a globular uh, cluster and like the light and that it would produce? Yeah. So um, again, I'm... The caveat here, I am not going to talk about globular clusters in our galaxy because 
there's more information on them. Than, there's than there's infinite other galaxies. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. That's what I think. <laughs> um, yeah. So one of the things that you can do when you look at it. So um, if you were just to take any optical telescope you want and take a picture of a galaxy that had a lot of globular clusters, you could measure how much light was in each of the globular clusters. And that is directly linked to the mass. And so brighter clusters are more massive clusters. Hmm. Where is the gravity in a globular cluster? Like how all the planets orbit the Earth? Do the globular clusters like spin in any sort of way? I absolutely love this question because when I started grad school and working on globular clusters, I always looked at these two-dimensional pictures of them and I was like, oh, you know, like that's nice. Like, you know, look at all the stars. And then it, it actually wasn't until I started keeping bees that I realized that these are <laughs> these are blobs of things that are all moving around each other. And so I guess, yeah, that's I think that's what I loved the most about having bees is I would just sit in front of them and, and watch them all move with each other because every single star in a globular cluster is just like a bunch of bees all moving around each other and they know about each other and that influences their motion. And then we can actually take this analogy a step further. Um, so... We know that in hives, the queen bee is sort of the most important part, and everybody moves around her. And if you watch a queen bee moving like across a hive, you'll see all the bees kind of follow in a cluster. So black holes are thought to sort of be the queen bees of globular clusters. Hmm. So you can have a more massive black hole form in a cluster. Because of gravity, it will sink to the center, and then all of those stars will be orbiting around each other in a very complicated way, not in a plane but just, you know, very random. I'm waving my hands here again because I'm so excited about this. Um, yeah, but they're wonderfully crowded and dynamic places. Um, and did you keep bees before or after you started working on, <laughs> on globular clusters? Yeah, I only got the bees two years ago, and that really revolutionized my view of globular clusters. I recommend it to everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Every physicist should Definitely. keep bees. I, I love that analogy. I too am a beekeeper, awesome. <laughs> so so I, that visually just works perfectly for me. And understanding the black hole as the queen bee really gives you a nice picture. And that nice picture is going to be the picture that we're going to close on. So thank you so much, Kristen Dig, for uh, a lovely conversation about globular globular clusters and your work. And um, to Corey Michelin, who's a rising senior at Aspen High School, and Madeline Schaefer, visiting here with her physicist parents. Um, I'd like to encourage any listeners to uh, hear more about our GOPHER program, which is high school students working here for a short period of time during the summer and getting to talk with physicists one-on-one. We promote that as much as we can. And um, if you'd like more information about the center, you can look us up on aspenphys.org. And uh, you're always welcome to come to our public lectures, summer and winter. Thank you. served as muse for countless numbers of poets, from the unnamed and unknown to Shelley, Dickinson, and Kerouac. The moon, her magic bee, big sad face of infinity, 
but only one of these had to worry about record label execs. You're on the sound beat. You're listening to Jack Kerouac reading his poem, The Moon, Her Majesty, on Dot Records, Poetry for the Beat Generation, with piano accompaniment by Steve Allen. The recording is significant in that it was released and then immediately recalled after a label exec heard the content and Kerouac's, let's say, state of mind. The recall letter came from Bernice Mason. You will receive a Dot album titled Poetry for the Beat Generation. Dot has canceled the release of the album for obvious reasons. Please do not review it on your publications. Thank you for your cooperation. Deep is the ocean, high as the moon. Low is the lowliest river lagoon. Fish in the tar and pull in the spa. 130 copies are believed to have escaped the recall, and this is one of them. Soundbeat is produced at the Belfer Audio Archive, Syracuse University Libraries. Good afternoon. It's 4.59. This is KDNK, Carbondale Community Access Radio, Glenwood Springs, Carbondale, the Roaring Fork Valley, and beyond. Thanks for tuning in this afternoon. It is a bit warm, 84 degrees here in Carbondale. We've got an hour of All Things Considered coming up next. I'm your host, Morgan Neely. Stay with us. He told me that he sees...